Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. In our continuing lecture series on History 102, we do the 1920s, Liberalism on the Move. So liberalism was on the move. So we have to talk about what liberalism is. But the reason that liberalism was on the move in the 1920s was that conservatism failed. Conservatism had gotten the world into the First World War, had been unable to end it, and had ended up with 20 million people dead. And then another 20 million people died from the Spanish flu. So we could see right from the beginning that conservatism had, in, especially in Europe, had lost. So how does liberalism deal with the world? This is kind of um, John Stuart Mill liberalism. This is classical liberalism. And it's the world sucks. Things don't work. Things need to be changed, and they need to be changed right now. It's okay if the changes cause some turmoil. That's luck. And remember, Locke is Thomas Jefferson. So it's okay that there's some turmoil because what comes out of the changes, a more powerful parliament versus a Catholic James II for Locke, was okay. All right, there's a little period of instability and, and you know, and things are changing, but it's okay because people are good. And it's okay if not everything works out, if you try stuff and it doesn't work out. That's a scientific method, right? You do an experiment, it doesn't work. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. That's the way it's supposed to work. If everything worked the first time you did it, then you would have done it already. But ultimately, the idea is that people are good and the new world will be better. It is optimistic. That is always liberalism's appeal. And so it appeals to the youth. There's, a, there's an old political saying in, in America, which is you don't, if you're, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you don't have a heart. If you're a liberal in your 50s, you don't have a brain. And it's like, ha, 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 when you get, but it, 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 it's a joke about young people and, you know, but it's also shows that as you get older, you get more conservative, at least in the American context. And the reason why is you start to own stuff. You become settled. You have a wife, you have kids, you have a house you got to pay for, you got a car, you got a job you don't want to lose. And so change doesn't appeal to you. Change is dangerous. Nobody likes walking in and their boss going, okay, guys, we're going to have lots of changes. What do you, what do you mean we're going to have lots of changes? Well, we're moving our factory to Tajikistan. Now, you could all have jobs there, but you got to move. Well, how many people want, what, huh? Well, you got your kid in private school. Your wife has a job. You got to sell the house. Huh? 
And so as you get older, you, you understand the world. But when you're young, you don't have anything. You don't have credit. You don't have a job. You don't, you don't have anything to lose. It's you and your guitar. It's a, it's, you're a bunch of Bruce Springsteen songs. Sure, give me a car and a full tank of gas and meatloaf and meatloaf singing Bat Out of Hell and um, Born to Run on the CD. And I'll take, you know, I'll go out to California. You know, do my life as, you know, start doing some computer programming, you know, go to Hawaii, teach people how to surf, you know, teach tourists how to surf. Hey, 50 bucks, but for the, you know, you get a couple hours and get to learn to surf. Sure. But if you're doing it when you're 60, hustling on the beach for tourist dollars, that's harder to do. Change is easier when you have nothing to lose. You don't own anything. That's why liberalism appeals to the young and, and the disenfranchised. So liberalism in the 1920s is born out of survival. Relief. We're not dead. And trauma. We should never have to go through this again. A massive war and a huge pandemic meant 50 million people were dead or hurt in, in less than a decade. Around the world. Four million people are dead from COVID, and we shut down the world economy for a year. This is, what, 12 times that, and had a major war. And so there's a relief in the 20s. We survived, and now we have to make it worth it. My friends are dead. So we have to make it worth it. And so you get this effervescence, this energy that pours out. You get Hemingway, you get Fitzgerald, you get Tolkien, you get C.S. Lewis. You get these guys who are like, I'm not dead. I'm going to write and I'm going to make the worlds and I'm going to tell the stories and I'm going to do something. I'm going to go places. Hemingway is always moving, moving, moving. Why? Why does liberalism appeal? especially in the 1920s, when World War I created massive changes. Remember, I talked about how conservatism died. Traditional Burkean conservatism lost. It had no appeal. So the break is either liberalism, which we're talking about now, or reactionary, revanchism, which is a right-wing conservatism. It's a conservative conservatism. It's not Edmund Burke. Reactionary, reactionary, reactionism, revanchism, R-E-V-A-N-C-H-E, is a nostalgia. It wants to go back. It doesn't want to, want to change the world slowly and make it better. It wants to cast off everything and go, all the new changes, and go back to the way it was. Like the conservative party today, the Republican Party in America is not a conservative party. It's a revanchist party. You have, you have no politician saying, everything's fine. Everything's great. Well, let's just keep it the way it is. No. They want to get rid of Roe versus Wade. They want to get rid of welfare. They want to get rid of government regulations. They want to make it 
like it was. Make America great again. Not keep America great. They want to go back. And for boomers who vote for that, it's mostly their childhood of the 1950s. They want to go back to a less complicated childhood. When men were men, mom was home. Minorities lived in different neighborhoods. And technology was understandable. There were three channels on TV. There were four channels on the radio. Eisenhower was in the White House. There weren't terrorists blowing up buildings. Science was good because Salk made the made the polio vaccine and everyone got one. And were relieved to get it. You did not have half of America going, well, we'll see how this polio. No, it was they lined up in giant lines all day to take their kids to school to get the shot or to get the sugar cube. It was a relief for parents for the polio, the measles, the mumps vaccines. It's why we don't have polio, measles, and mumps today. Ugh. But World War I caused massive changes. And so you couldn't stay a conservative saying everything's fine. It wasn't fine. So then what was it? And for liberals, the idea was... We're going to change. First, government controlled the economy. It was pro-union. It was pro-female labor. It had to be because it needed workers to work to make stuff for the war. So a lot of power went to workers versus capital. You had more democracy. Women got the right to vote. And the more people who voted, they voted for things that would help them. That's to be expected. That's not weird. So you get votes for women and independence for women. You get welfare and social service for widows and orphans and veterans, i.e., the deserving. You couldn't look at these people and go, no, you don't deserve money. Of course they deserve money. Their father got blown up on the Somme. He had, he's blinded at your pre. So government replaced traditional aid organizations like the church or philanthropies. Why? Because the, the local church couldn't handle. The local philanthropies weren't big enough. The only thing with the money, the size, the organization, the skill to get money to people in need, the 20 million wounded veterans, and a like number of children and widows, is going to be the government. It's the only organization big enough. It's why when we talked in, in, in History 101, why li libertarianism is dumb, why it's a it's a stupid philosophy. It doesn't work because humans have not invented anything more efficient than government at redistributing money to people who need it. Libertarian only works if you're a social Darwinist and you can live completely on your own on some mountain and you can make your own food and sew your own clothes. Like, that's the only, everything else, you're interdependent with other people. You're interdependent for your roads to bring food to the supermarket. You're interdependent for the, 
for the roads, again, or the water supply for your workers. You're like, oh, well, I'm a libertarian. I own a business. Well, how does your workers get to your place of business? Sidewalks. They need to drink. They need to eat. They need to, they need to land for, for housing. Like, government does all of that. Otherwise, it's Hobbes, and you murder each other to get a little piece of something. So libertarians are only rich people or people who are near rich who are like, if government didn't exist, I would be so much richer. Yeah, you'd be dead. You'd be dead because a roving band of uh, raiders would come and kill you like it's the last of us. Like it's something out of a D&D murder hobos like The Walking Dead. Because you need the structures for the rest of the system to survive. If humans could have come, come up with something better than government, we would have come up with something better than government. We haven't done that yet. So government takes over the welfare of people, the welfare state. And in, in England, it takes it over completely with healthcare. The NHS, the National Healthcare Service, which is socialism. Anyone who says socialism doesn't work, socialism doesn't work. Take a look at the NHS, which is owned, operated, paid for by the government. All of the doctors in the NHS work for the government. They are not independent. They work for, they are government employees. It is socialism and they love it. They love it so much that in the London Olympics, they had during the opening ceremony a special part of the opening ceremony just for the NHS. Even conservatives who don't want to spend a penny on anything all argue when they are running for re-election, vote for me, I will give more money to the NHS. That was exactly what Brexit was about. It was, we're going to stop paying all this money and we're going to give it to the NHS. So socialism works and we'll get there. People like government services that work. Three, black folk got jobs in northern factories. They escaped to Jim Crow South. They joined the army. Their entire units in the, mili- in the U.S. military, they're just black folk. Which meant they learned how to use guns. They learned the engineering skills. They, they went to war. They went, and how do you go back to the segregation, to the apartheid that is the South? How do you go back to Alabama after you've conquered your pre- So this puts racial hierarchy under pressure. And it creates demands for economic and social equity. Not necessarily equality yet, but equity. I should be able to get a job. I should not get shot by the police. It's hashtag Black Lives Matter. Because up to this point, they don't. From 1875 to 1920, they don't at all. There's no government institution... That says, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And now, with black folk being important to northern factories for war material, for being in the army, suddenly they do matter. Four, millions of rural folk mixed with each other, mixed with urban folk, and went to war. They saw cities like New York and Chicago for the first time. They rode trains for the first time. They saw Europe and had sex with European women, and they didn't want to go back to the farm. 
We're going to talk about that during our conservative backlash. They saw the world. Why would you want to go back to Kansas? Why would you want to go back to rural Nebraska? So that's a problem for conservatism is the war mixed all these people with other people that had better skills, that had newer ideas, that were faster paced, that were bigger buildings. You went from uh, rural Nebraska where nothing was bigger. The biggest building in town was five stories. And you went and there's a hundred story building in New York. And there's not just one. There's 50, 20, 20, 50, 75, 20, 50, 50. All Midtown is full of these giant, you just look up. And then there's the bridges, the subway. It's mind-blowing. Chicago is the same. All the energy, all the movement, all the industry, all the economy. And all of that death and destruction, so this is one, two, three, four, five, Equal to atheism. There's no God. There can't be a God. How can there possibly be a God that allowed for the death of 50 million people from war, famine, and then the pandemic disease? How is that possible? What kind of God, and if, and if it is, if there is a God, he's an SOB. He's not any God I want to worship. He's a devil. He's a demon. And so you have the breakdown of traditional structures. The church doesn't have answers. Because your first question is, why didn't God stop that war? And the answer is, I don't know, it's part of God's plan. The traditional Christian answer is, it's part of God's plan. God's plan was to murder 50 million people? F him. F him. To make, to make these people childless? To make my sister an orphan? F him. All that death and destruction broke down families. And this this causes panic. But now you have women-headed households. 20 million men are dead. Now you have women who are raising kids. And you'll start to see the conservatives' reaction to this is create institutions that will replace men. Not with women, but with external men. Uh, boys clubs. Boy scouts. Uh, hunting clubs, camping clubs, things that like we're going to get boys, we're going to put them together into groups of boys. We're going to give them a heterosexual, manly man, successful man, right? And we're going to then take them away from their mothers for a short period of time and take them to the woods. And we're going to teach them to shoot guns and we're going to teach them to fish and we're going to teach them manly stuff because otherwise they're just sitting with their mothers and they're going to be gay. They're going to have an unnatural, and that's Freud. They're going to have an unnatural because their father is dead. They no longer have a masculine uh, model to, to go off of. So what happens is they win. They, they, they don't have sex with their mother, quote unquote, but in the Freudian concept, they become, they get their mother. They get their mother's affection, which is supposed to be denied. See, in, in the Oedipus complex, the idea is the child wants the mother's affection. And it's, it's crudely put as the mother wants to have sex with, the child wants to have sex with his mother. But that's not really true because the child doesn't understand. What the child wants is the affection and the love of his mother. So what prevents a child from getting that? 
his father, who is bigger and stronger and smarter, like, right? The father can pick him up, pick up the child with one arm, right? And is able to get affection from the mother in all kinds of different ways. They converse, they talk, they smooch, they snog. They do other things that you're not awake for. And you wouldn't understand even if you were awake for them. So for Freud, and the Oedipus complex is you are in competition with your father for the affection of your mother. And so what's supposed to happen is you lose. The child loses, realizes that they lost, and so decides to become like his father in order to get a woman like his mother. That's what's supposed to happen. Okay, well, what happens if the father isn't around? The father takes off. They get divorced, which is very hard to do at this point in time, or he gets dead in the war. Well, now the child gets all of the mother's affection. So he doesn't have to become like his father to get his mother. He can remain a child. He never has to grow up. He's, he becomes Peter Pan. And so he becomes girly because he doesn't have a masculine image. He becomes feminine. He becomes homosexual is the big worry because he doesn't have a strong male model to emulate. So marriage breaks down. Church breaks down. God breaks down. The family breaks down. And if you're a conservative, this is terrifying. But if you're a liberal, you're, you're, you're like, we have to make all of these changes. We have to deal with this stuff. This, this stuff is fact, right? The government controlled the economy because of the war. Welfare needs to be given to widows, orphans, and veterans. Black folk have more freedom. Rural folk don't want to go back to the farm. And death and destruction meant the traditional um, control institutions, uh, the family, marriage, the church, uh, the town, have broken down. All of these will see a conservative backlash in the 1920s of trying to stop them from changing. So where do we see this liberalism? And we see it in culture. The biggest place we see it is in culture. Not surprisingly in economics, but in culture. The jazz age. It is a time of money, of dancing, of sex, of mixing, of fun, of experience, of music, of liberation. Black culture moves north and is let loose. And that's the biggest part. This is the great migration. You can now get jobs with all these white people in going away to war. With this boom in the war industries, black folk could get jobs. And they get sucked north. St. Louis, Chicago, Philly, New York, to the great industrial cities. Then throughout Detroit and Gary, Indiana, Buffalo, they get sucked north for these jobs. And they bring their culture with them. But the thing about their culture was, like their bodies under Jim Crow, their culture was also locked down. You couldn't celebrate. You couldn't party. You couldn't make any money. 
off of your music, off of your songs. You were st- your J- Jim Crow was not just segregation. It was an imprisonment of everything about being black, being African-American. It was your control of your body, but also of your behavior. And in the North, it was let loose. That doesn't mean there's not racism. That doesn't mean there's equality. There's not. But there were spaces where you can celebrate. And that's jazz. That's blues. That's what's called the Harlem Renaissance of poetry and novels and writing and records. It was a massive cultural explosion. And why? Because white kids were willing to buy it. Just like in the 90s with rap, white kids took on black culture as a way of rebellion. And that brought in money. That brought in places. That integrated places and made jazz acceptable. Now, jazz is never as popular in America as it should have been. It's always much more popular in Europe and especially in France. So black folk who become big jazz musicians are always going to go to France and become cultural heroes. But what this money... So you have black folk engaging in their own culture, and now they have money from the factory work, from the northern factories, right? And now you have money from white kids who are being rebellious against their parents, buying records, going to see shows, and that allows independence for black folk for the first time. Well, except for the little window of Reconstruction, 1865 to 1872. Now you have independence for black folk. They can make money for and by themselves. They could sell their own goods, their own products. They didn't have to sell their bodies, which is what they did in the South. The only thing they could do is labor in, in the South. You couldn't own your own businesses. You couldn't make money off your own talent. And so what we get is this explosion of culture. What to do with that independence? What, how should black people live? We get Marcus Garvey and African nationalism, separation. Black people have to be separate from white society because if we're integrated, they'll take, they'll take, and they'll take. White people will always take from us. So we have to create our own banks. We have to create our own businesses. We have to have not segregation, but separation. Um... This is something that's argued in Killer Mike's uh, Netflix show in his first episode where he talks about I'm in Atlanta and I can't go to a black business and buy black products made by black people and transported in black owned logistics trucks. Like, I can't do it. He has a statistic and I don't know how true it is, but it's a statistic that the that the average black dollar the dollar made by a black person stays in the black community for about 6 minutes and what marcus garvey is arguing is you have to create a parallel civilization but black people will never be equal if they get absorbed into white society. They have to create something, a separate track. Where W.E.B. Du Bois argues for integration. That we will never, it is segregation that is keeping us back. 
And this is his book, The Souls of Black Folk, which we'll have a couple quotes from later. That integration that white people have to see that as long as we're separate, white people will never take us seriously. White people will never think we're as good as them. They have to see. They have to deal with us on a daily basis. Their sons have to date black women. Their daughters have to date black men. That only with integration. They have to they have to they have to employ black people and then they have to work for black people. That only with integration can we find equity. And this is the great debate. This is the debate Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X will have. This debate. This is this is a debate. This is a debate you've seen if you've watched um Bla- uh, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. This debate with Carlton. Carlton's a sellout. Right? He's white. He's essentially a black kid who became white. If you watch Blackish, it's also part of the debate. How do we remain black in a white society? So this is this is the debate in black cultural philosophy going back to the beginning of black cultural philosophy and it's it's reaches this effervescence in the 1920s you get langston hughes's poetry you get louis armstrong and billy holiday their music was on the radio they become rich celebrities they are the first rich black celebrities in the country white people knew their music white people liked their music Black celebrities previously were like Bojangles, were the vaudeville, were comedians, so that they're not dangerous. Now Louis Armstrong leads a big band. Billie Holiday is sexy, singing songs that Grandpa likes to listen to. You know, and so there's all of this, 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 this tumult. And we could see this move to the north where in 1910, 90% of African-Americans lived in the south. And the old confederacy will keep dropping and dropping and dropping so that by 1970, it's only 50%. But by 1930, it had dropped 25, 20 points. These folk were able to escape segregation. They didn't escape violence. They didn't escape racism. Both exist, and we're going to talk about that. So Langston Hughes, a dream deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust over and over and sugar over? Does it does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Now that poem, A Dream Deferred, and that line, A Raisin in the Sun, will inspire Lorraine Hansberry in 1959 to write Raisin in the Sun. The first major all- African-American play put on on Broadway. 
Now it's 30 years later. And there's the climactic scene in the last act where they're in Chicago and the black family, Walter's the eldest son, uh, the father is dead, the mama is a, is a widow, she's got two daughters, at least one daughter, I think it's two daughters, and a son, and the son is um, trying to, to lead the family and help and run. And he's working. He's a chauffeur. So he's a working class guy. And they're going to buy, or they have bought, they're about to buy a house in a white suburb in like Haddonfield. They're moving from Camden to Haddonfield. They're, they're quote unquote getting out. And what happens is Walter has his money stolen by a African-American friend of his who takes the money that Walter wanted to invest in a liquor store and takes off. And so this is the scene. Now, this is 30 years after Langston Hughes writes A Dream Deferred. Walter, you see, Mama, the man came here today and he told us that them people out there where you want us to move well, they are so upset, they're willing to pay us not to move. Now, in the movie with Sidney uh, Poitier, uh, the, the voice of Piglet, the man who is Piglet, comes representing the Haddonfield um, Homeowners Association. And they go, we found that, we discovered that you want to buy uh, a house in our neighborhood. And that's great. Just It's just great. Um, but do you really think that house is for you? Well, yes, we. that's why we bought it. Well, you know, there's lots of things in that neighborhood, and it's a kind of an old house, and wouldn't you be more comfortable if you lived in a neighborhood with more of your kind of folk? And they're like, yeah, that's pretty racist, man. No, we bought this house, so we're going to move into this house. And Piglet goes, look, we like you not to move in. It's nothing against you. It's just we want to keep our neighborhood a certain way with a certain group of people. And um, while you're very nice, how about we pay you? You paid $300,000 for the house. How about we give you 500000 not to move in? We'll buy the house from you, and we'll pay a premium over it. And in that earlier scene, Walter says, get, get the F out of my house. No. Well, now he's had the money stolen, and so he's like, they are so upset, they're willing to pay us not to move. Mama does a stage direction. Where she's upset, Walter, Mama, don't cry. Understand, that white man is going to walk in that door able to write checks for more money than we've ever had. It's important to him, and I'm going to help him. Uh, and I'm going to put on a show, Mama. Mama, son, I come from five generations of people who were slaves and sharecroppers, but ain't nobody in my family never let nobody pay him no money. That was a way of telling us 
We wasn't fit to walk the earth. We ain't never been that poor. We ain't never been that dead inside. And sister, well, we're dead now. All the talk about dreams and sunlight that goes on in this house, it's all dead now. Notice a dream deferred, right? The dream is to move into the better neighborhood, to be integrated. And it sounds like, because of all the things that happened, it's a dream deferred. Walter, what's the matter with you all? I didn't make this world. It was given to me this way. Hell yes, I want me some yacht someday. Yes, I want to hang some real pearls round my wife's neck. Ain't she supposed to wear pearls? Somebody tell me, tell me, who decides which woman is supposed to wear pearls in this world? I tell you, I am a man, and I think my wife should wear some pearls in this world. Mama, baby, baby, how, how are you going to feel on the inside? Walter, fine. I'm going to feel fine, Mama. I'm going to look that son of a bitch in the eyes and say, all right, Mr. Linda, that's your white neighborhood out there, and I'm going and you got the right to keep it like you want. You got the right to have it like you want. Just write the check, and the house is yours. And I'm gonna say, and you, you people, you just put the money in my hand, and you won't have to live next to this bunch of stinking and words. And maybe, maybe I just get down on my black knees, Captain. Mr. Boss Man, groveling and grinning and wringing his hands in a profoundly anguished imitation of the slow-witted movie stereotype. Oh, he, oh, yeah, boss. Yeah, oh, great white father. Just give us some money for God's sakes and we, and we gonna come out and not dirty up the, your white folks' neighborhood. He breaks down completely and I'll feel fine, fine, fine. He gets up and goes into the bedroom. The sister. That is not a man. That is nothing but a toothless rat. Here we are writing 30 years later, Lorraine Hasenby, and she's talking about a dream denied of moving up, of moving out, of bettering each generation. The same thing Langston Hughes is writing in the 20s. Lorraine Hasenberry is commenting on, making direct reference to in 1959 and 1960. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, like life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly, hold fast to dreams. For when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen in snow. W.E.D.B. Du Bois. And I put up, just for those of you who are like, well, uh, 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 it's Du Bois, I have what he says it is in his own letter. So I put it up on the video of how he wants it pronounced. He wants the oi to be boy, as in boy. He talks about how the, the word would have been, it's now African-American or black. It's in, when he's writing 1905, it's Negro, is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world, i.e. black people can't see themselves as black people. They only can understand themselves as not white, as what other people think of them. That there is no, and what he's talking about is that there is no world, there is no African-American world. 
where African-Americans can be African-American. It's all subdivided. And so he, the, the black experience is to see, always see oneself how others sees the black individual. It is a particular sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro. Two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one black body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to obtain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In a different point in Souls of Black Folk, the South believed an educated Negro is to be a dangerous Negro, and the South was not wholly wrong. For education among all kinds of men always has had and always will have an element of danger and revolution, of dissatisfaction and discontent. Nevertheless, men strive to know. I put that in there because for two reasons. One, that is a scene in The Wire. When the hitman, brother, um, what's his name? Brother Masood? No, brother. When the hitman comes and to protect one of the drug gang supply lines and to whack Omar. And there's a scene where he goes, he has one of the lackeys, you know, bring him magazines. He's like, you forgot my Atlantic. You forgot my New Yorker. He's like, well, I got you, got you uh, the other magazines. He's like, go back and get me my Atlantic and get me my New Yorker. He's like, why? And he goes, do you know what the most dangerous thing in America is? And it's, he has a different word, but an educated black man. So go and get that education. Because once you read Locke, once you understand Rousseau, once you listen to the Enlightenment, to philosophy, to Nietzsche, and you go, I can't live this way. I have to change. Education means change. Science means change. You can't accept the life you're in if you know there's a better world out there. Again, back to Paris, right? The men, how do you go from Alabama to fighting in the trenches in France for a year Go back to segregation, Alabama? You can't. You can't. And so, and then we talk about, right now we talk about critical race theory. This is an obsession with the right and they're making laws about a way of thinking about life. That America is not systemically, that you can't teach America as systemically racist. Well, man, I'm a historian, man. This that sh that ship sailed like in the 40s. Like, I have wandered around being like to my other historian friends, being like, I don't understand this. I thought this was just history. Like, this is not a thing. This is, of course, this is accepted, and it's been accepted for a long time. You know, whether it's incarceration rates, whether it's credit worthiness, whether. Well, it's 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 the 
the creation of the ghettos and the hood. The fact that you have Haddonfield is 98% white and Camden is 85% African-American. Like, like guys, like it's obviously systemic. There's obviously more than just like black people who just didn't want to move to Haddonfield. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So as a historian, it's not a thing. It's like the air. It's, it's just accepted. So, but that's what we're talking about. Education. That if you teach people that America is systemically broken along racial lines, they might want to fix it. They might want to change it. So nevertheless, men strive to know. We get feminism. The new woman, literally called the new woman at the time. The right to vote, the right to work, to be separate from men. And they had money from war work, which means urban liberalism and female liberation. Does it apply to black women? That's a question. There is no answer to that. For some it did. For others it didn't. And black women suffered from the two places. right? They suffered from conservatism of black men who didn't want a liberated black woman. And then they suffered from white society that didn't want a liberated black woman. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is going to say in Souls of Black Folk that black women are the most prejudiced against racial group. Of the may of of American society, now the Native American is is has been wiped out. So it tells you what in 1905, thinking about the Native American was, and and W. B. Du Bois does bring that up from time to time, but he's talking about in in society, black women are more are treated worse than anybody else. So does this new liberalism apply to black women? In some places, but in a lot of places, no. There's drinking. There's this new attitude of the woman. There's dancing. There's birth control. That's Margaret Sanger. The idea that you could have sex. Now, Margaret Sanger wants it for for basically married women to stop having children after they've had a couple. But if a married woman can have it, why can't an unmarried woman have it? So women have and start and enjoy sex without complications. That's from birth control of marriage and children. We see this in Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises. We see this in Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby. The flapper drinks as hard as men, parties twice as, uh, twice as much, ruins men. This is the, the eternal knock on Zelda from which Zelda Fitzgerald, um, uh, Scott Fitzgerald's wife, is that she ruined his writing. That after Great Gatsby, he never really writes anything great again. And that it's Zelda's fault because Zelda was a drunk and went crazy and was a mess. There has been in the last 20 years or so an, an attempt to, to save Zelda's reputation from that. And a lot of that reputation comes from Hemingway, by the way, and Fitzgerald's kind of writer friends. Um. Who, who like to quote Fitzgerald as being like, oh, if I just wasn't married, I would... I, but he loves Zelda, by all accounts. But the idea is, oh, I would write so much more, but oh, we have the kids and there's Zelda and there's all this partying. and You know. And the idea of the flapper and the idea of... I mean, the worst thing that happens, the thing that ruins the men of the sun also rises is the sexuality of Brett. Who Lady Ashley, 
that she sleeps with different men. And it just ruins all the men. It ruins their friendships. It, just, it breaks them. They can't say no because they do believe in the new woman. They're like, Lady Ashley can have sex with who she wants. I just want it to be with me. And I don't like it that it's not with me. And like, it just breaks all of these men who are way more conservative inside than they like to let on. Now, all of this liberalism, this feminism, this first wave of feminism is fueled by wealth, by education, by credit, by location, by status, i.e. it doesn't apply to all women, rural women, Midwestern women, farming women, black women, Jim Crow, Southern black women, definitely not. They also liked socialism. These are liberal economic women. Why? Because socialism supported women, supported mothers. It meant you could have money not tied to a man's success. This all ends with the Great Depression. Because the Great Depression sucks all the money out of the system. So what the, the women of the 30s and the 40s are going to be conservative women. Conservatism is going to come back. And the reason why is the, the economy that supports the flapper that supports this feminism, implodes. And so women are forced to go back to marriage. Women are forced to go back to traditional institutions. And there's plenty of conservative institutions and men saying, told you so, told you so, told you so. Notes on feminism. The 19th Amendment was the culmination of progressive reforms from 1890 to 1915. By 1920, half of states allowed women to vote. In some form, women's female suffrage started with school boards. Interestingly enough, it makes sense. Women were the protectors of children, and the school board was the democratic place of defending what children learned. So it makes sense that women had an argument to be let in to vote for and to run for positions on the school board. But conservatism meant not all women could vote. Black women could not exercise any right to vote in the Jim Crow South. African-American women began civil rights activism at the federal level, which culminates in the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Asian-American women couldn't vote until 1952 because Asian immigrants were not allowed to become American citizens. Native women couldn't vote because the reservations meant they were not citizens of the United States but of tribes. Utah didn't allow Native women to vote until 1960. Working women, working poor white women, didn't have the education or access to the polls. No child care, no transportation, no voting holidays, no knowledge of politics, no access to local political institutions or clubs. They didn't have access to the party apparatus the way Mrs. Banks does. So... How does she use her right? Okay, she has the right to vote. She can't use it because she can't get the time off. She can't get the day off. She can't lose the money. She doesn't know enough to make an informed decision because she doesn't have access to the education or the news. So even though you have the right to vote, quote, 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 can you use it? Or are all, or are all these impediments in the way? There's technology. Technology is revolutionary in the 1920s because it creates personal culture. Records, magazines, literacy, books, photography equaled personal history. Typewriters, where you can make your own stories. 
Suddenly, you didn't have to handwrite. You could do it faster. You could make your own sewing. Sewing machines meant you could have personal fashion. Now, we look at, oh, you sewed your own clothes as a poor person's thing. Well, but it also allows you to make what you want. It allows you the freedom to do new things, to try out new fabrics. You're not stuck in a world that's very conservative economically, that's making clothes for conservative women. Now you can make your flapper jersey gown, right? Not gown, but, but tight jersey fitting. Uh, how is Lady Ashley described? With a jersey sweater, and she had the curves of a, of a, of a yacht, of a, of a racing yacht. And the, the outfit left nothing to the imagination. So more people could create art, culture. You have the democratization of language, ideas, stories, things. Suddenly they're cheap. They're obtainable. Photography gave you, you could do a personal history. Here are your kids. Here's your wife. Here's birthdays. Here's communions. Here's weddings. Here's your travel. Right? Those are all personal histories. Me in front of the Eiffel Tower or the pyramids. And then I could write a letter on my typewriter about that story. And I could put it in the mail and send it. Records and magazines meant we were reading the same things. Literacy meant books so I could get more knowledge. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, I learned about Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his poetry, Xanadu, but especially Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, not from a book, but from an Iron Maiden song I listened to in the 80s. Day after day, day after day, we struck no breath, no motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. I learned that from a music, from a record, literally from a record. Not from the book. It was the music that inspired me to get the book and read the rest of uh, lyrical ballads and you know, go on the drug trip that is Xanadu and, and opened up my world. That's what records do. I read magazines constantly, New Yorker, Atlantic, to get all of these ideas, the newspaper, the editorials, scientific journals, historical journals. I'm constantly reading to get new and more information. All that exists, all that begins to become accessible in the 1920s. And over time, it just becomes more accessible because it becomes cheaper. Now I get the articles emailed to me. It costs virtually nothing. I subscribe to an app called Autumn, A-U-D-M. It has its audiobooks. It's audio magazine stories. So now I have someone read to me, not the computer. The computer doesn't read. They actually hire a voice actor to read. So I can be driving and I'm like, oh, let me listen to The Atlantic play. And I listen to The Atlantic read to me by a professional reader. And it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it's not expensive either. It's, a, it's for, the, for a year, it's the cost of one good dinner out of a restaurant. So it's well worth it. And this is what Hemingway writes in The Sun Also Rises. Either you paid by learning about them or by experience, by doing, or by taking chances or by money. 
enjoying living was learning to get your money's worth and knowing when you had it. You could get your money's worth. The world was a good place to buy in. And that's the 1920s. That's the liberal attitude of the 1920s. You could have these experiences. You could get on a boat and go to Egypt and see the, and go on a cook tour and go see the pyramids. You could drink fine French wines. You could eat an American steak. You could do things. You could go to the museums and see art. They were open because of the progressives in the early 1900s and late 1880s to the early 1900s. The Museum of, of Modern, uh, not Modern Art, uh, the Museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York was free for poor people. You could walk in and see John Singer Sargent and see David and see ancient sculptures. So was the Museum of Natural History. You could go and see the dinosaurs, gems, diamonds. So liberalism in the 1920s had an emphasis on personal freedom, especially consumer and sexual freedom. This was a complete break with pre-war culture, the old way of doing things. It is completely new. It is the triumph of the city. In 1920, more people lived in the United States in cities than in rural areas for the first time. Homosexuality was in the open, especially in Weimar, Germany. Kink, doing kinky stuff, was postmodern. It was cool. It was very much a who cares about labels, man. You do what feels good. Why? Because we're not dead. Because 50 million people were dead after World War I and the pandemic, and you weren't one of them. So, hey, you want to do something kinky? Go and have fun with it. You want to wear high heels and have a beard? Cool. Now, that doesn't mean everybody accepted it, but you could find spaces for it. A gay lifestyle was not yet acceptable. You couldn't get married and live a gay lifestyle with your husband and then have your, your adopted kids and live in the suburbs. Like, not that. But in certain places, in big cities, you could have a world where men hung out with other men who liked to have sex with men. And you could find that world. And that world created jobs and entertainment and, and connections and networks and art and culture. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the village in New York in the 1960s. That's where Andy Warhol and the factory will come out of. On the opposite, you have, well, it's not really opposite, but on the other side, you have African-American black culture becoming American culture. Even if black folk are not equal or have equity in society, black culture is being assimilated into. American culture got blacker in the 1920s. There's no two ways about it. I mean, the white music of the 40s, the big bangs, the big bands, the swing, comes out of black music of the 20s and the 30s. Right? Just as, as, as rock and roll is going to be a British export from American black music. Like, Little Richard has a right to complain that he invented rock and roll and he doesn't get credit for it. So does Chuck Berry. I mean, in Back to the Future, Chuck Berry is think about how how insulting this is like you couldn't really do this it's a nice joke but you couldn't do it because the idea is chuck berry invents rock and roll guitar 
by listening to a middle-class white dude from the 80s play his song in the 1950s, in 1955. So it makes the argument. What Back to the Future does is make the argument that black culture is really white culture. That black people took from white people. Like, that's crazy. And it's just not true. You read um, Keith Richards' biography, Life, and it flat out tells you, we wanted to be black musicians. We wanted to be black jazz and blues artists. Like, that's what we wanted to do. But we were English, so we had to do something else. But all of this, all this liberalism required money, required education to participate. It, it, this liberal, liberated world was small. But it got a lot of power because it was wealthier. It got a lot of power because it was urban. It got a lot of power because it was hip and culture was pulling it. But most women were not flappers on birth control. Most African-Americans were not marchers. Most people were not jazz enthusiasts, world travelers. Most people didn't want that world. They wanted a quieter world. If not going back to 1910, at the very least, they didn't want the liberalism of 1920 kicking down their door. And the problem is, like in the 1960s, is it's the kids that are doing it. It's the kids with the records. It's the kids with their education. It's the kids, it's the young women being like, I want to go dance to Charleston and have fun. And I want to drink. And I want to smoke. And I don't want to do what my parents did. They started the war, and it was terrible. I want something different. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the conservative backlash, where most of the country, especially in the United States, but in Europe and France, are going to say, I don't like that stuff going on in the cities. I don't like what women are doing. I don't like it. It's too much. So thank you. Be careful out there.